That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. Contradiction is about the way people see me. Um, like some people will see me as just a lawyer. Some people who know me from back in the day will see me as just a hip hop artist. And they will see those two things in violent contradiction. And I don't see them as being contradictory at all. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to embrace that, that seeming contradiction and just have a song talks about I'm this and I'm that, or I'm that and I'm this, but you know, these things that may seem to be diametrically opposed, um, for me, they aren't. Welcome to Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is David Kelly whose story I think you're going to find fascinating. I certainly do. I actually uh, follow David on social media and we've, we've become friends and uh, I am excited to have him here with us to inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Um, just a little bit about David. Um, he's currently the um, chief legal officer of business and basketball at the Golden State Warriors. Go Dubs. Um, <laughs> he was uh, a partner at Catton uh, Meachin before that, has been a business owner, attended University of Illinois uh, College of Law and uh, Morehouse College. So without further ado, thank you for being here with me today uh, to BS with me today, David. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So let's let let me just the first thing I have to ask you, my husband would kill me if I didn't ask you something about the Warriors first. We'll get to all that <laughs> lawyer stuff um, second. But, you know, I think that one of the questions, at least on his mind and probably on a lot of people's minds, um, is how is it going in San Francisco? How did how did that transition um, uh, work out for you guys and in kind of to our theme of diversity? Has it been how, how has it been different from being in Oakland? Well, for me personally, uh, my commute went from being about 10, 15 minutes to get to work to about an hour. So okay. um, that was a that was a, a change and a challenge. Um, but it's actually been great. Um, I so I live in Oakland. I love Oakland. Um, I do not intend to move. I intend to stay in Oakland. Um, but where we put the arena in San Francisco was pretty phenomenal. Uh, when I go out to lunch. I'm able to walk like we're right on the right on the bay, so able to see the water on a daily basis, able to see the bridge and and the arena is not arena is not bad. Um, it's pretty pretty spectacular arena. So so the transition to San Francisco has been pretty has been pretty great. Getting over there, all the entitlement work we had to do to get there was a bit of a challenge. But once we once we got there, it's been it's been really phenomenal. Okay, so uh, so no big difference in terms of the fans. Um, 
the difference between the fans is it's all the same folks. We so we actually um, we transitioned. I'd say about seventy percent of our season ticket holders um, between sixty and seventy percent, which was pretty high. Um, so we were already pulling from all across the bay. Okay. And so a lot of the people um, who were our season ticket holders previously, you know, some are from South Bay, some are from East Bay, some are from San Francisco. Uh, and most of those people, the vast majority of those people um, stayed with us and, and came over to the Bay. Now, the the winning changed a little bit this year, just a tad. Um, <laughs> so 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 that made a bit of a a bit of a difference. But you could see like any any of the games that we were in uh, where we had a chance to win down the stretch, it was as loud at Chase Center as it had been at Oracle um, Arena in the past. Like it was really phenomenal. So once once we get the, you know, next year when we get Clay back, um, I'm looking forward to having a, a really raucous environment. Okay. All right. Well, now that we've gotten the basketball stuff out of the world, <laughs> The stuff everybody probably has really wanted me to continue, but I'm not going to do it because we're here to talk about about authenticity and and getting beyond stereotypes. I I, I really, really, really want to know. I want people to know that you have a, a, an interest and I think in a passion, it seems like a passion in music. And in addition to being a lawyer, and I just saw that that you um, have a, 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 a what do you call it? Dropped a sing a single called, and it's, it is called contradiction, which and which I love because that's really kind of what we're talking about here. Um, and so, talk to us about that passion about your music. Um, and, and about the, what, what you mean by contradiction. Okay. Yes. So yeah, truly a passion. It's a passion that I've had ever since I was a kid. Um, when I was 10, 12 years old, the only things I wanted to be was I wanted to be a basketball player and I wanted to be a musician. Um, and in my musician for me, hip hop really spoke to me because I really, I was, I considered myself a writer. And so I love to write. Um, whether it was poetry, I thought I would write novels at some point in time. And so hip hop kind of combines both of those passions for me, my love for for music and my love of writing. Um, And so, yeah, so I've just, no matter what my job has been, my passion has always remained that I want to, I want to write, I want to produce music, I want to release music, I want to drop singles. Um, And so I've never really stopped doing it. Even if I wasn't commercially releasing things, I would always continue to, to work on music uh, whenever I have spare time. Um, I have three kids, and so the spare time is a little less frequent than it used to be. Um, but I managed to carve out, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so so I, I released a, a single um, called Contradiction, and you, you nailed it. Like, Contradiction is about the way people see me. Um, like some people will see me as just a lawyer. Some people who know me from back in the day will see me as just a hip hop artist and they will see those two things in violent contradiction. And I don't see them as being contradictory at all. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to embrace that, that seeming contradiction 
and just have a song talks about I'm this and I'm that or I'm that and I'm this. But, you know, these things that may seem to be diametrically opposed um, for me, they are. I, I love it. I love it. And, you know, did you drop another single today? I did. I did. It's called What's Real. What's Real? And, and what is real, David? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's, what's Real doesn't really... The, the title may, may make it sound like I'm talking about something deep on the record. I'm really not, to be quite honest. Um, <laughs> as, as a hip-hop artist, it's obligatory that you, that you um, have the braggadocious braggadocious rhyme from here to from every every now and then and so what's real is talking about the way hip-hop is now versus the way hip-hop was or you know or the way i perceived it as i was coming up and i think a lot of a lot of the stuff now i would consider to be sort of fake and um the stuff that i consider myself doing or was raised on i consider that to be the real stuff so that's what that's all that song is about so, you know, that's when you know you've actually gotten kind of mature is when you start saying that that this stuff now is not music. It was yeah. music. <laughs> mature slash old. Right. Exactly. I don't want to say old. My father was a jazz musician and I heard that all the time growing up. This is not music. You know, the, the, this is junk. This is not music. But yeah. but I feel I'm so, guilty. So you're I'm guilty. talking about keeping it real, huh? I think the things that we've talked about, have, you know, are, are to me what make you unique, um, especially as a lawyer. And, and, you know, I'd love to know if with all the interests that you had and, you know, you, you talked about, you know, maybe writing novels and doing and poetry, you went to law school. Um, how did that happen? Well, so I always thought I would go to law school. Um, it's interesting. So as with most things with me, it starts with my parents. And so my father, um, was, is a lawyer. Um, he's also a CPA. Um, he was the first African-American partner at one of the big six accounting firms. Um, so he was a partner of Arthur Anderson inside of the, um, yeah, inside of the early seventies is when he made partner. And I looked to him as someone who had that law degree, but didn't practice law. Okay. he always talked about his law degree is opening up doors for him. He's taken more seriously inside of certain settings. He's able, he has a seat at at certain tables and just the value of that law degree. When I was my kid's age, um, like 13, um, I saw the importance of having that degree. And so although I never wanted to be a lawyer, um, (laughs) I always sort of thought that I would at some point in time, get a law degree. And one of the reasons that I decided to, to go to law school is because I thought that it could open up doors for me in a way that maybe a business school degree couldn't do or any other degree could, could do. I, I felt like I could get a law degree and I could work in the business world. I could work at a law firm. I could write. I could do any number of things with a law degree. And so I thought that it, it opened up a lot of doors for me um, and didn't pigeonhole me, which is always what I'm about. And so do you feel like it took you a while to get to that point? Because most of us who go to law school have that same idea, right? I'm not going to, we, especially black folks, right? We go to law school because we either really want to, to make a difference in our community 
or we go because we want something that nobody can take away from us or we're going to get a seat at the table. Uh, a lot of times we find out that both of those things are hard to do once you go to law school. Um, do you feel like it took you a while to find that or did it just kind of work out for you? It took a while for me to feel like I had a seat at the table for sure. Um, you know, I, so I was at Catton for eight years, living the life of your typical not glorified associate, um, you know, in the trenches, doing all the things that an, that an associate does at a large law firm. Um, so not glamorous at all, um, but immensely rewarding. And I appreciated it in the moment. So I, so I would say that having the law degree, um, it immediately changed my life. It put me in a different tax bracket. Um, it created a lot of opportunities and, and, and you know, opened up a lot of doors for me. But having the doors open and then being able to go in and, and get that seat at the table are two completely different things. And so, you know, it, it immediately opened the doors and then it was, it was as with, pretty much everyone, it was a long slog to, to feel like you had a, a seat at the table. And so when you were going through that slog, uh, whether it was in law school or at, at law firms, what, what stereotypes do you feel like people made about you when they met you? Um, why, you know, have you thought about why and, and have you thought about whether or not they were right or wrong? Yeah, so um, it's funny. Two things. So my, my mother always has this saying, um, know who has the problem and let them have their problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't, like so don't let someone else's problem become my problem. And so I would know that people would have various stereotypes as it came to me. Um, and it was always imperative to me to not internalize those and to, to first off, be aware of them because you have to deal yeah. with them to confront them. You cannot stick your head in the sand and, and act like they do not exist because they do exist and they shape your career, they shape your life. Um, but at the same time, if you're doing battle with them, you are not internalizing them and you are not allowing that battle to consume your life in a way that you're off of your path. And so with that in mind is how I try to try to navigate, um, whether it's at the law firm, at the Warriors, where, wherever I am. And so, yeah, some of the stereotypes that I'm sure people had um, were, well, this guy's not really serious about the law. He really just wants to be an artist. Um, and at some points in time, they may have been right. Um, right. To be, to be quite right. honest. Um, you got to know that some stereotypes actually may fit. Um, right. And, you know, I never saw myself going, when I was going to law school, I never saw myself working at a big law firm. I was not didn't see myself as big law material. And so I'm, I'm sure some people who saw themselves as big law lifers were like, yeah, I don't think he's going to be here for that long. Like, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, and they were right in the long, in the long term, um, that I didn't want to be there for 20 years. Um, at the same time, while I was there, I was a hundred percent in and I was there. Like I was not, one foot in, one foot out, not, all right, I'm just here trying to do nine to five. And then I really want to pursue this music thing on, on the side. It was like, no, when, when, when I'm here, I'm here from seven to seven or eight to eight, whenever, whatever the, the hours are. 
um, and I am trying to become a partner. Like that is my that is my goal. That is that is my mission until it's not. Um, right. And I was doing music stuff on the side, but I was a hundred percent focused. I had great mentors um, when I was at the firm who were able to to coach me through that as well, because I think I would have slipped and, and done a lot of things if, if left to my own devices. Um, so I had, you know, a lot of people inside of my, you know, in my life and on, in, who were in my corner, who were helping me out um, and who were letting me know how I was viewed and letting me know what stereotypes their partners had. Um, and that sometimes, all right, in order to counteract this, you need to go work with this person who may be the okay. hardest person at the firm to work with, but you need to create that relationship. Um, well, this is the person who speaks up inside of the partner meetings. You need to create that relationship with that person. You need to walk right in and ask for work and get and get work. And then you need to commit yourself to doing the best job that you can on this assignment. Um, that sort of advice, that sort of just direct advice. So you had sponsors. Yes. Yes. And how did you know? I, you know, this, this is always intriguing to me. Um, how did you know that you needed that? How, how did you know to foster that so i can't take credit for it i don't need i can't say that i knew i needed it they knew i needed it okay. <laughs> um okay. so when i started as a first year at catton uh, my good friend leslie manier had just made partner at catton um in the corporate group and that's my girl and okay. she had gone through catton from yes that is that is the person who is the most most responsible for my success at CAD and outside of anything I did is Leslie. And so she would help to navigate, help me to navigate through. She'd help to give me work. She would criticize my work as a lawyer, not just as, you know, a friend. Um, and she would let me know, like, these are the people when that partnership decision is made, these are the people who are making the decisions. And so it's great that you've created relationships with, you know, Jane Doe and, and, and John Smith, but you need to create this relationship over here with this person and that other person um, so that so that they know you. And so that when your name comes up, they can speak with firsthand experience and, and they become your ally. And so you were so that you were a corporate lawyer, you practice corporate law. How, how did you get to I'm sure everybody wants to know how you got this gig with Golden State Warriors. So let's let's go there. Yeah. So, um, so back to the stereotypes. So when, when I was a, when I was a, a summer associate actually, um, at Catton, my office was right next door to one of the partners named Jerry Penner and, um, Jerry's has since passed away, but Jerry, um, is the partner at Catton who had all the sports work. And so at that point in time, Catton represented, the Oakland A's, the Chicago White Sox, the Chicago Bulls, and I think the Chicago Fire were the only teams that we represented at, at that time. And they okay. basically were all coming from Jerry's relationship. And so Jerry, for whatever reason, um, used to go out and create relationships with young African-American, specifically African-American male attorneys. Um, he's not, he's, he was um, white male. Um, uh -huh. But when he saw a young black person with um, potential, he created that relationship and he tried to. And I was not the first. Um, I wound up actually being the last because he passed away while I was there. Um, but this is something that just that he did. And he had an interest in music. 
And so we would have conversations when I was a summer associate about hip hop, about music. Then we, we became friends. We had conversations about religion, about any number of things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that the two of us would talk about. Um, we would have those conversations. I, I didn't hide the fact that I did music, that I was a hip hop artist. Um, he was really into music. He was really into, in, into, into literature. And so that's how we connected. Um, and so he is the person who invited me to work on his sports matters. And so fast forward, I was in the corporate group, maybe about 80% of my work was your typical um, work that a corporate associate would do. And then maybe 20% of the work was sports related. And even that work was your typical corporate work. It was you know, M&A work, but for sports yeah. clients. Yeah. Um, and so I was at the firm. I've been at the firm, I guess, seven years. And we represented um, Joe Lakeup and Peter Gooper when they purchased the Warriors. And so we were on the buy side of that transaction. transaction. And so we continued as outside counsel after they purchased the team. And then about a year later, and I remember actually when, the, when we first closed the transaction, I told my wife, like, if they ever have an opportunity um, at the Warriors, I'd love to live in the Bay and to work for these guys. Because I was looking at some of the things that they were doing with the team. They had brought Jerry West in. They had hired Rick Welts. Like, they were putting together a serious management team. Um, and so uh, about a year later, they were looking for outside counsel, and I was just well positioned to um, – to, to come on board. So you're in the right place at the right time. It sounds like you got it. You got it. <laughs> so has, has your passion, your, your authenticity, um, has that made a difference in your professional life? I mean, I would, I would imagine that, you know, and this could be a stereotype that I'm making that, you know, the players, probably feel comfortable with you i would think um has you know i don't know how much how much uh contact you have with them i would imagine a lot but you know is that is that just a stereotype on my part or is there any truth to it no it's some truth to it it's, it's a good icebreaker um like look one of the reasons i, so I grew up in the South suburbs of Chicago. Um, and so one of the reasons I really loved hip hop is because I grew up in a predominantly white area. And for me, it connected me to my roots, connected me with who I was, um, mm -hmm. hip hop did. Um, and so it's always kind of just personally played that role. And so it's always been a great um, icebreaker because if you can rhyme, you get love, you get respect. Like, <laughs> um, And so... And that's with that's with the guys as well. And so they'll see me, you know, dressed the way I'm dressed at, at, at work, maybe a suit or whatever it is at, at the games. Um, but they know that. Um, no, I, I, I don't come from I'm not too far away from my interests are not too far away from what their interests are. Um, right. And that we, we we share that bond. We share that thing in common. Um, and yeah, I'm the old head, of course. Um, <laughs> But if you can, as you say, if, if, if you can spit, you can spit. And so, you know, if you can rhyme, you can rhyme. So. And it's funny that you said that hip hop allows you, it, it allows you to be who you are. It's interesting because before that, you, you made it clear that it's not where you're from. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, those are two very, like, very different things. And I understand that. I grew up in Compton, right? 
And, and you know, and I feel like, I guess what I'm getting at is, it, it's it's like you're you're walking a line, you know, where you you could you could have one foot on one side of the line and one foot on the other side, and it's very important to be able to do both. Do you feel that? Hundred percent, hundred percent. So I was born on the South Side, and then I was like six or seven years old. We moved to the South Suburbs of Chicago, um, and. From that point on, I've always felt like I've had a foot in each world, uh, which actually is a great book by Leonetta McLean called A Foot in Each World. But anyway, oh. um, and so I've always kind of felt like I am not only this or only that or only anything. Um, I can walk inside of all of these circles and that's just what my upbringing has been. That's just, that's how I was raised. I was raised, you know, I would, would I'd go to a bar mitzvah and then I'd go play basketball and then I'd go to a hip hop show. And then, you know, I, I, I was just inside of all these various different environments just from day one. And it just never really was foreign to me and, um, or intimidating with the first maybe five years after we moved out here, um, my kids had been in three parades, um, had gone to any number of NBA games, finals, you know. So, you know, I try to make sure, my, my goal with my kids is to make sure that they understand that this other stuff is not real. Uh, we talk back, back to what's real. Um, like, this is great and it's fun and it's beautiful and let's enjoy it while it lasts. But, um, and where we live is fine and it's great, but your people are over here. Your responsibilities are over here. Um, your connections are all over the place, but don't forget that your connections are over here as well. So, so, you know, I put my kids in, in private school, but when we are, um, I try to make sure that we have contacts, that they have contacts um, with Oakland, um, not just with the Golden State Warriors or, um, you know, any of the things that, that come along with, with the success that we've had as, as a team or that I've had. Good for you. Good for you. And that, and I, 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 I've raised a daughter and I know that that's not, it, it's not easy, but it's doable. Um, so can, do you have, do you have any like stories you can tell us about a time that you insisted on being uniquely you, um, either personally or professionally and how that worked out for you? Yeah. So, um, Back to, again, when I was a summer associate at Catton, um, one of the partners, named Sheldon Zinner, good friend of mine now, um, he, was a, he was a high-powered partner at the time, and um, we were having a conversation just about, he, he had heard, I, I think, from Jerry Penner that I did hip-hop, so we were just having a conversation about music, and um, I let him know that I had a show um, that Friday night at a club out in, in Evanston, Illinois, which is just north of, um, of Chicago. And he lived maybe about three, four blocks away from the club where I was performing. Uh-huh. And he was like, he's like, I'm gonna come check you out. I was like, you should come. Like, <laughs> it'll be it'll be a good show, trust me. Um, and so he came 
And it's funny, he didn't he didn't look out of place at all. I still remember he had his black turtleneck on and he was just cool. Um, <laughs> and he enjoyed himself. He had a great time at the show. And he became another one of my advocates at the firm. He was in the litigation department. So I, so we, we didn't do a lot of work together, but he was just always a voice, a very powerful voice at the firm um, who liked me, who knew me, who thought I was interesting and thought that that interesting aspects of me would be valuable to me as an attorney, valuable to the firm. Um, he helped to land a placement for me when I released an album I got interviewed in the New York Times. That really was his his um, connection that allowed wow. that to happen. Yeah, no, he's been just helpful throughout my career. And it's because I didn't hide the fact to him or to anyone. I didn't lead with the fact that I was a hip hop artist, <laughs> but I sure didn't hide it. Um, I wasn't afraid of it. Um, wasn't afraid because I thought that the music that I did, I thought was good and the writing was good and, I, and the concepts were intellectual and all of that kind of stuff. So, so why not invite him out to the show? And just that extension and him taking it up created a personal relationship and has helped, helped my career. So how do you, how do you get the inspiration for your, for your lyrics? I mean, is it, how, how does that work for you? A lot of times um, it's, political stuff that I'm thinking about. Um, it could be racism. It could be um, injustice, any number of things that I just kind of want to, I got to get off my chest. Um, and that's what I write about. Um, sometimes it could be just, as I said, just your braggadocious hip hop stuff where um maybe I feel slighted, like people have forgotten that I'm a good hip hop artist. I got to remind people like, you know, I'm very competitive. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's that, um, it's any number of things. It could be raising these kids, um, and thinking about them and what they're going through. And so I'll write something either from their perspective or about them, um, or something that, you know, they may not really be interested in what daddy's doing now, but maybe 10 years down the line, they're going to pick something up and maybe I could write something that could, could help them with something that they're going to go through, um, help them to think about something um, in a different way or, or to withstand or to stand up for themselves in a certain way. Um, so those are just any number of things that, that, that are interesting to me or that I think would be helpful to someone who's listening to it. And then a lot of times I make it personal to, I want to help this person, like my son, my daughter. Um, mm -hmm. Any so it's so, so yeah so it's it's there's not a single process that I go through but that's how it all kind of works out. So speaking of politics, um, how has I know that the the NFL has has done a very poor job and you don't have to co-sign this uh, of dealing with Kaepernick. How what do you how did you guys deal with that at the Warriors or or did you deal with it? At yeah. yeah. So um, one of the one of the roles that I had at that point in time was um, was related to player development, and it was putting on player programs for the guys. Uh, so not, not not developing them on the court, but developing them off the court. And okay. I think that the reason that we haven't had the same issues in the NBA um, 
that they've had inside of football is clearly not because the guys are less engaged. The guys in the NBA, I think, are more engaged, more vocal. Um, but they feel comfortable and they understand that the league and the teams are not there to try to stifle them. The league and the teams are there to give them a platform and look, the platform is yours. Take the platform and do what it is that that you want. And when you feel that the people that you're working with are invested in you and are not trying to shun you or stifle you, um, you'll use your platform because you'll use it, but you, you won't, like so much of the cabinet protest was also protest, I think, of the league itself. Right. Um, and so we haven't really had that in the NBA. And I think a lot of it, quite frankly, goes back to the way that Adam Silver dealt with the whole Donald Sterling situation. Um, so I'll, you know, I digress. But I think that set the stage for a lot of the way that the players understand Adam, understand the NBA, the relationship that Adam and Michelle Roberts have. I think a lot of that comes from that. Um, but one of the things that we did, so I was in a player development role. And so um, we brought in um, Harry Edwards, who was one of the consultants. Um, so, you know, Tommy Frazier. So um, Tommy Smith and, and, and Don Carlos. Um, so we brought him in to talk to the guys along with um, one of the writers, Marcus Thompson, who's um, African-American writer in, 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 in the Bay Area. And just for him to have a, a conversation with them about Kaepernick and about his work when he was with, he was, you know, he, he used to work with um, Kareem and I think Bill Russell and, just, you know, he's, he's an OG. He's that guy. Um, uh-huh. And the purpose of that was to make sure the guys know that, look, um, this is your time. This is your moment. This is your platform. And here's a resource that you can separately reach out to about how you want to go about making a difference. And it's not a it's not someone who it's not me. It's not someone with a warrior's um, business card, but this is, you know, someone who understands the struggle and understands the struggle of athletes and can help you in a way to guide your path, whatever your path, you want your path to be. And once they saw that we were authentic in that sense and not trying to, you know, manage them, um, then they, they do their thing and they are, and I think it makes for a better just relationship. And it's the right, you know, from my perspective, it was the only thing, the only thing to do. Um, but I think, you know, even just from a business perspective, it was, it's the right thing to do. Right. So, um, what role does diversity, inclusion, and equity play in how you, David Kelly, walks through life, both professionally and personally? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, again, going back to my father, um, he was the first um, African-American partner at a, at a big six accounting firm, but he was not, he would never have been comfortable if he was the last. Um and that's the way I look at the seat that I have. Um, I'm not going to have this seat forever. And so while I have any platform or um, leverage or whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, I want to make sure that I'm creating opportunities for a wide swath of people. 
um, people who look like me, people who don't look like me, people who think like me, people who don't think like me. Um, and so that's key to my role and, you know, professionally, um, that I'm making sure that our executive team at the Golden State Warriors is not just, first off, not just male, because sports are dominated by men. So that's why I say, you know, it's not just people who look like me. Um, and so, right. And so, so a, a lot of my work is around that. Um, the HR department reports into me and, and, you know, we're very much focused on that. We started a diversity and inclusion council, um, that I'm on at the Warriors. And it's just, and so we try to be intentional on that front. Um, and then just personally as well, I have always just had friends from all walks of life and I've loved it and I've enjoyed it and I've, I'm better because of it. Um, and so, you know, if everyone thinks and looks like me, you know, I'm, I can be boring with my, bored with myself after a certain amount of time. Um, so I need to have, you know, just a lot of different experiences and friends and influences and get challenged by people um, and, and, and grow as a result. And so on a personal basis, um, I'm probably not as intentional with that as I am, you know, on a professional basis, but it's just kind of naturally works out that way for me. That's awesome. So I guess I, I cannot, we're, we're going to start wrapping up here, but I think people would kill me if I didn't ask you at least one question about Steph Curry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have a question, but I'm wondering, do you have a story or anything that you can relate um, to the audience? He really is that dude. Um, Like, he is as down to earth, as grounded, as comfortable with himself and his understanding of the platform that he has, he's all of the things that you think. Um, like he really is that dude. Uh, well, I mean, I, it's funny when I think of Steph a lot of times, because, you know, we are not the same age. I think of his parents. And so I think about, all right, what what did they do to raise this guy? Like, that's what I think about. Um, right. You know, they, they have two sons and a daughter, the same as me. Um, their sons are very competitive, both competing at the highest level, but they have love for each other. How do you maintain that as a parent um, when they're both very ultra competitive, right? Um, right. Their sons and daughter grew up in the shadow of a very, like, I'm not anywhere near Dale Carey, but um, an accomplished parent, Um so how do you keep them grounded when they're around, you know, they're going to all-star games and they have all this access, you know, the access of, that the NBA player has. Um, how do you keep them grounded? Um, so I, when, a lot of times when I think about stuff, I think of actually about his parents um, and like, what did they do in order to raise him? Because he really is that dude. Like he is, he is, he is as genuine as you would think. Well, I'm sure one day they're going to be saying the same thing about, about your kids. I have no doubt. So my final question for you, and you don't have to do this if you don't want to, but you want to spit a little bit for <laughs> something, a little something? 
I I can always oblige. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, okay. These are serious times that we're living in. No time for giving and a living ambivalent. Brothers be bumbling, babbling for the sake of it while the world is crumbling. Here's what I make of it. The surface full of followers, crooks, stuns, idolaters, took funds and borrowers, shook ones and wallowers. Crews need the nine to feel peace in mind, but the blind lead the blind and don't heed the signs. They force feed the mind with swine, weed, and wine, and then time they switch from dank weed to lines. Some redefine success and opportunity, but speed and with speed the blind pursue and lose our unity. Okay? Yes, thank you. <laughs> now, was that, was that, um, the new one, or is that just something you that's, just made that's up? That's an old one. That's that's just an old. That's that's the go-to one anytime I'm asked to speak. <laughs> All right. Well, I really appreciate it. I am thrilled that you agreed to 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 be here to BS with me today, David. And um, I just want to say thank you. I appreciate it. Now, I appreciate you having me. This is always fun to talk to you, Merle. We need to we need awesome. to get more often. Let's do that. And thanks to everybody for listening. And until next time. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now. From the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world. 